Hi friends, Happy New Year, Happy 2024, how crazy is that? I hope you all had a great holiday season, whether in celebration or just going through the usual motions of life if you don't celebrate. If you noticed, I took a break from releasing an episode last week Friday because I was in full-on vacation mode. I actually flew to California to visit my family to celebrate Christmas. It was at my dad's side of the family. My uncle, his wife, and my cousin Kyle, who most of you have grown to know online over the past few years on my Instagram. This Christmas is actually super and extra special and memorable for me because this is actually the very first time I ever celebrate the holidays with them. Or any of my father's family, in fact. I don't really share much about my family online for privacy, but I guess over the past few years, I have becoming more open about this. A holiday story incoming, I actually never met my father, for those who don't know. In fact, I didn't know anything about him until around 5 or 6 years ago, very recently. I didn't know his name, how he looks like, anything. I won't get into the details in this episode intro, maybe in a future episode or video. But in summary, I grew up with my single mom, an amazing woman truly. But I definitely always wondered about my father and his family. The reason why I grew up not knowing anything is something that I will also allocate for that future explanation video. Anyways, I remember being 8 years old one day in the cathedral with my mother and grandmother during the Christmas Advent season, praying that someday I could also spend the holidays with my dad or his family side too. During that moment, I knew it was an impossible prayer. But look where we are now. Almost 20 years later, it finally happened and I couldn't be ever more grateful. Yes, due to serendipitous events, I was able to connect with my dad's side. Though I never got to meet my dad because he actually passed a year before this, I finally met his brother and his family in 2019 in California. And my wish as an 8-year-old finally came true. Now, why did I have to go on this whole Christmas journey besides just wanting to tell my story? Well, on Christmas Day, we actually drove to Las Vegas for a few days to celebrate. We met my cousin Kyle's childhood friend who happened to be both a contemporary dancer and a massage therapist. Now, if you have been following the podcast for a while, you might notice that most of our expert guests are exactly in this same regard and story, providing service and care to others, whether clinical or scientific, and also living other lives. We met a rock star turned anesthesiologist in season one, physical medicine doctor, and also a dancing heartthrob online in the same lifetime, a real housewife of Dallas, and a physician, and we can go on. Our episode today is a continuation of these Hannah Montana-like best-of-both-worlds stories. A badass healthcare worker and a star on the side. I have the greatest honor of sitting down in this episode with an actual icon who I genuinely am a huge fan of. I still can't believe that I actually got to sit down and have this episode with her. I'm talking about Dr. Catherine Coe. She's a board-certified neurosurgeon, ambidextrous at that, with over three decades of service having been the chief of neurosurgery for over 20 years of this. In fact, she invented the patent for a method of performing decompressive craniectomy through a bone flap removal from a cranium back in 2007. In 1998, she authored the Survival Bible for Women in Medicine. But beyond this, beyond the medicine, she's a multimedia artist, having attained a Master's of Fine Arts in Painting. She's a senior curator at the American Medical Women's Association, creator of art space and blog post Neurosurgery Le Freak, and artist and writer for the American Association of Neurological Surgeons, the Neurosurgeon Studio, with her work and story being featured on New York Times. What an honor. A neurosurgeon and an artist? Nothing can get better than that. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I hope you have a great rest of the day and a happy new year. I hope this one is as marvelous and as great and as amazing and as fulfilling for you as it would be for me. Let's manifest it. Hi, Doc. Hey, how are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Well, thanks for asking me. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Oh my gosh. It's such an honor. Are you in New York? Uh, no, I'm actually in Pacific, somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. 
I'm so and, jealous. Yeah, I escaped the nor'easter, luckily. Yeah, we had some snow yesterday, so yeah. I'm so jealous. Well, again, thank you so much for yeah. being with me tonight. I am such a huge fan of your work and of your story and everything that you do. So thank you so much for joining me on my platform. If you could first please introduce yourself to everybody. Okay, hi. <laughs> I'm Doc Amy Dexter or Catherine Cole, and I'm an ordinary brain surgeon. <laughs> and I also do art, and I'm originally from Honolulu. I went to the medical school in the University of Hawaii, and then I did my neurosurgery residency at Mount Sinai, and I did a fellowship at the University of Washington in cerebrovascular surgery and research. And then when my career, about mid-career, I decided to get a, a master's of fine art in painting with an emphasis on medical themes. And so that's really, I've kind of combined both careers now. I, I don't really see much of a difference between the brush and the scalpel. Yeah. It's sort of the same. And also, I, you know, I'm, I'm biracial. Yeah. And so I'm so old that I was biracial before the term came up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm actually Korean and Irish. And so um, that's kind of an important theme for me also in knowing intimately two different cultures, having two different perspectives on things and um, utilizing them in my journey to the best of my ability. So yeah, that's how I got to. And then when I did my residency at Mount Sinai in New York City, I decided to stay. And partly I stayed because I had a really good job offer. I, I started working for Cornell mm -hmm. Department of Neuroscience at Cornell University. I did that for a couple of years. And so I stayed in New York, but I also then decided, yeah, you know what? it's a really good art scene. Yeah. And I sort of had a kernel of an idea that I might want to go do something in the arts. And so I sort of, you know, stuck around. It was, it turned out to be a pretty good idea. Yeah. So working in New York City is, is very competitive, as you know, Chris, mm -hmm. you know, it's, yeah, um, yeah I'm, glad, I'm glad that I did that. And now I'm sort of, you know, uh, my career is sort of 30 years now. And so it might soon be time to turn from the page and do something <laughs> new. Uh, we'll see. Yeah. I mean, doc, there's nothing ordinary about you. I, mean, I look up <laughs> to you so greatly. I wanted to ask, though, where did that inspiration for medicine come from? Is it like a family member, a friend, a personal experience? Well, you know, my mother had polio. And I wrote about it in this story called The Wound Whisperer because my mother got polio just before the vaccine came out. And so my whole life was sort of geared toward disability. You know, because when you're a child and your mother has difficulty moving and falls and things like that, you're very aware. I don't know if that's the inspiration. I always loved science mm. too, though. So I was going to do something in science no matter what it was, whether it was uh, so I, I graduated in zoology. Oh, okay. So I had a new yeah, I was initially interested in animal medicine, mm -hmm. and God bless the veterinarians. <laughs> I, I, I admire them so much, but I migrated over to human, the human side, about my third year of college, yeah. and then, uh, but I did graduate in zoology, zoology yeah. so, so te technically speaking, I could work at a zoo. Yeah. <laughs> Just to work in different types of animals, right? Wow. <laughs> right. Yeah. Second career, right? Yeah. I mean... <laughs> My inspirations for healthcare also came from my mom, not because of the disease aspect, but she was a nurse. She actually just retired. She's been a nurse for 30 years. So also ever since a kid, I was like, yeah, I think I want to do something within taking care of people as well. Yeah. I saw that post about your mother <laughs> and that she had recently retired and, uh, you know, give her a hug for me because the nursing staff and the physician assistant staff and Everybody down to even the people that clean the OR. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean the work they do, and you know, sometimes they don't get the acknowledgement. But um, yeah. some of my favorite people. I remember when I first started. I came from Honolulu, and I ended up at Coney Island Hospital. Mm -hmm. That's where I did my I did my internship in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first person who was kind to me was the janitor, and mm -hmm. she just. Uh, yeah, she just, I mean, she was amazing. And I never forgot her. And she was, she was cleaning. And she was the one that looked up and she said, you know, having a hard night. And I mm -hmm. said, yeah. And she was encouraging. So, yeah, everybody, the healthcare, anybody in the hospital, you know, sometimes you have to just sit and, and wonder and thank them for what they do. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I mean, I worked throughout the whole 
COVID-19, like the epicenter in 2020 in New York. And you know how hard like New York City was hit in, it was at March, April of 2020. Yeah. And uh, I mean, just also props to, we always say, I mean, my coworkers, like the genders, the environmental staff who would go in and clean the rooms and we had no idea what was going on in the oh, yeah. air, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, that that COVID period in New York City was, you know, I'm still, still thinking about how to recover from it, yeah. both physically and also emotionally. It was such a try. It's such a, uh, an incredible experience, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen how much of a toll it's brought on so many healthcare workers, especially physicians as well. But I feel like the life of a physician is a life of many tolls, right? I mean, it's just such yeah. a long and arduous road from school and training and exams. And I feel like the education learning never stops, especially for you in neurosurgery. I guess it's a very standardized thing where there's like so much sacrifices, right? A lot of things that you have to give up, potential money that you have to give up with student loans or the years that you're in residency and you're incurring, you know, interest to any loans that you've gotten, missed parties, missed family occasions. Do you have any regrets going through it all now that you have been practicing? Um, no, I'm, I'm glad I did it. Mm. I wish the system would change, though, mm. so that, number one, the medical students wouldn't have that huge financial burden on their backs when they get up because it's really stressful to yeah. own, to have to own six figures you know i didn't come from a, um i paid for my own school i went to public school all the way mm -hmm. and i took loans and everything like that my family could not mm -hmm. give anything mm -hmm. and so i know how, i know how it feels of course during my time the, the rates were much lower yeah. but yeah that that's one thing i wish the system would change and i wish it's such a long process for me it was 16 years mm -hmm. before i could you know hang out hang out my shingle <laughs> And so, you know, you, you miss a lot of your growing up. Mm. And so when you're in the hospital day in, day out, and in the operating room day in, day out, sometimes your emotional maturity doesn't keep up with your peers who are, you know, outside doing other jobs, nine to five, yeah. no weekends. And so I think that's part of, I think if I hadn't gone into art, uh, which showed me a different way of thinking and looking at the world. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe I would have some regrets or some, mm. I would have missed something. But um, I think, you know, art really saved me. And um, because it made me see something in the quiet of my studio. There's something about being in a studio when you're painting, maybe some idea that you've operated on, mm -hmm. some concept, some narrative that gives yeah. you insight and profound thought that you know in the hospital when you're moving and you're walking around and you know, somebody's a patient is crashing you're focused on trying to fix the problem yeah but in the art studio you can focus on what you've been through what that family's been through what the patient is going through and it gives you a deeper sense of responsibility and gratitude that you've chosen this field yeah, yeah. because the gratitude can get lost when you're tired, when you're under stress and you, you forget why you're in the field. So, you know, being an artist, I think really, really helped me. And I'm just glad I did it. I didn't know I was an artist yeah. until late in my career, mm -hmm. very late. One of the things too, is you're surprising that things may bubble up in your life yeah. that surprise you, mm -hmm. that you never knew you had inside of you until one day you wake up and you just say, huh, <laughs> you know, this is, this is who I am. This yeah. is really who I am. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it, I think people would be shocked uh, if they knew me in medical school to find out I was an artist, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, th I think your art too, like the, the things that you paint, it's a very intentional. And, you know, as I have read a lot of your excerpts in your book, I notice how very intentional you are with everything that you have done, Doc. I mean, you even wrote a book called The Survival Bible for Women in Medicine, I think in 1998. And, you know, I think that's emanating from your pictures, again, being intentional to writing a book like this, like a survival guide. I wanted to know what was your experiences as a woman in medicine, either in school or in training that led you to write 
a book like that? Well, you know, the Survival Bible for Women in Medicine, oh, this is how long ago it was written. I wrote it. I wrote it. <laughs> okay. Okay. No, no. So um, I finished residency in 1991, but I actually wrote the book really quick. I wrote it like in 92, 93, but it took some time to get published. Mm -hmm. And because it was one of the first books by a woman in medicine for women in medicine. And it, it's not just doctors, it's all women who are, you know, physicians, assistants, nurses, nurses, things like that. It's all women in medicine. But it is geared toward the residency doctors thing. And I didn't have uh, women around me in residency. Mm. And the ones that I did, we were kind of isolated. And so it was kind of like my love note, something I just wanted to give the women that I couldn't directly touch or communicate with because in neurosurgery at that time, very isolated. Mm -hmm. So I was, I, I literally hand wrote it and I, um, there was, and, and it got published and uh, it's so long ago now, but I finally converted it into a doc, dot, doc, mm -hmm. Microsoft Word doc, document. So I'm going to update it and it's probably going to be called either doc, Daughter of Survival Bible, you know, like daughter of Frankenstein, or granddaughter. Maybe <laughs> granddaughter is more appropriate. I want to just publish it online and then people can read it. And, but it'll be updated. One of the funny things in that book was I had a recipe, that, you know, I was cooking during those days. I had a recipe for fried rice. And that's the, that's the Catherine Coe fried rice recipe. But... <laughs> But I'm a vegetarian now. I wasn't then. <laughs> so that will definitely have to be updated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I guess from the time that you were writing that book, I mean, I can't imagine how isolating it was, especially in neurosurgery. I mean, we know the statistics when it comes to women in surgery specifically, right? And even more to subspecialties within surgery, like neurosurgery, orthopedic surgery. Are there things that you have seen throughout the years that still needs to change until now for women, especially female physicians, whether it's residents or attendings? Yeah, I, I think it has, of course, it's much better than when I went, mm -hmm. when, when I went through the system. But I think having women there, having women go through the female life cycle, mm -hmm. I think that helps the women that come afterwards and just the fact that a female is there uh gives the predominant culture which is which during my time as male gives a predominant culture the idea that women can be there and everything that the males do when i was there you know the problem with surgery though is it's a physical thing yeah of course you know you have to understand everything and a lot of thinking a lot of studying but it's physical and so when I was there, the tools were for men. Mm -hmm. So it's like as good as Serena Williams is using one of the male's rackets mm -hmm. to play ball. So that was something that um, I don't think any of my uh, professors had any notion of mm -hmm. that, you know, that females approach surgery, you know, there's a size difference, there's a strength difference. Yeah. Males approach surgery differently and the tools, the hand size. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I kind of had to work through myself. And in fact, after residency, I ended up using almost none of the tools mm -hmm. that I had taught to use mm -hmm. because they just didn't fit my hand well. Yeah. And so yeah. it, it took, it took a while. And that's, that's some of the things when you have women around you teaching you, mm -hmm. they have the same skill set. Mm -hmm. And I remember my best assistants during surgery when I was, when I became an attending with all these women, they were like mm -hmm. absolutely the best assistants. Mm -hmm. Of course, there was some really good yeah. male assistants, but in general, the women, there's, there's nothing like having, doing surgery and having a female, a woman yeah. colleague across the, you know, feel from you. such a sense of comfort. Yeah. And that's an important thing. I, but I, I, I hope the residencies have, have uh, matured to realize that, you know, women bring a lot, another perspective to the field and that it's definitely not going back. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, I mean, they, we they have, have no, we have no choice but to plow forward. Ever since I was a child, my inner arms and neck would always suffer from itchiness and irritation whenever I would sweat. 
It can become so debilitating, forcing myself not to scratch my skin and end up with wounds from prickly heat, especially at night. Thankfully, I have found relief through By Dr. Mom's Soothing Beta Cream and Soothing Bad Treatment, which uses barley-derived beta-glucan technology to help alleviate eczema, bug bites, and dry, itchy, irritated skin. Beta-glucan is a fiber shown in scientific studies to improve skin hydration and healing, and By Dr. Mom's products extract it with a technique that uses air technology, requiring no chemicals or solvents. Created by family physician Dr. Stephanie Liu with the help of an allergist and immunologist, you can now allow your skin to breathe and heal naturally. Using the code CHRISTIAN10, that's C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-1-0, you can get 10% off your first order on buydoctormom.com. As a healthcare worker, my identity can become so boxed within the pressures and expectations of my profession that sometimes I forget who I really am outside the hospital walls. This is why I find so much power and liberation in self-expression through fashion and accessories and Lupin seeks to do the same. Encouraging self-confidence and creating a safe space to be yourself, Lupin seeks to share with the world simple and impactful jewelry pieces that can bring confidence effortlessly. Meaning what goes around comes around, the brand, comprised of third-generation jewelers, holds a mission to brighten the community by promoting positivity and the growth mindset. Lupin's clean designs are handcrafted in South Korea using 925 sterling silver, and can go with almost any outfit on anyone. In fact, I wear my pieces on and off shift. With the code FRANZ, that's F-R-A-N-Z, you can get 15% off your first order on lupin.com. Let's bring more luster into the world, together with Lupin. I remember coming home every day from elementary school and smelling the newly steamed jasmine rice in the cooker that my grandmother made just in time for dinner. It reminded me of my first few years living on the farm back home in Asia, sniffing the rice while overlooking the fields. Founded in 2020, Bison Candle Co. hand pours nostalgic and iconic scented soy wax candles inspired by the Asian scents, flavors, and traditions that founder Brandon Leung grew up with in his first-generation Chinese-American household. Brandon's mission with Bison is to create authentic Asian aromas while rediscovering his love of his Chinese culture and heritage. The candles and home fragrances celebrate aromatic eastern flavors and aromas one would typically find in an Asian kitchen or pantry, like Vietnamese coffee, steamed white rice, and white peach. Enjoy traditional scents alongside some modern spin-off blends and be taken back into the beauty of the motherland with the code BAISUNFRANZ, that's B-A-I-S-U-N-F-R-A-N-Z, for 15% off your first order at BaisonCandleCo.com. I guess also throughout the years, Doc, you've probably seen so many brokenness within the healthcare system for sure, like very systemic flaws and errors. And I guess COVID has exposed a lot of those brokenness into the light, especially into the media, right? Let's say a student somewhere in the world wants to pursue medicine, but is afraid of the daunting brokenness again in the system and is asking if it's still worth it to pursue medicine. With all of your experience and all that you have seen, I guess, with your patient experiences and all that, do you think it's still worth it to enter medicine in a time like this? Yeah, I do. I think that it's one of the fields where you get paid to do good. Mm. So I think if you really like science and you like medicine, and you have a hankering for service. Mm -hmm. You cannot beat the feeling you get from making a difference in somebody's yeah. life. Mm -hmm. Even if they don't thank you, mm -hmm. uh, it's still something that rises above money. It rises above almost everything. And so that part, you, know, you have to have that feeling and you have to have that desire something like that would make your life fulfilling the same thing with art when someone looks at my one of my art pieces and they get and it somehow minuscule changes their outlook on something it's it's a profound it, it has deep profound meaning for me um, medicine is like that too in that it can really have an impact on that person's life and so if you want to leave some kind of a trace on this earth, mm -hmm. that 
is a really, really good avenue. I just wish that they would cut the time down so that people wouldn't have to go through 16 years to become a neurosurgeon. And I want the people to be more accepting of having outside lifestyles, for example, motherhood, for mm-hmm. example, some other stuff, some other things. I think one of my messages in medicine is that you can do multiple things. Don't ever be pushed into the idea that you have to just do medicine. I remember when I was interviewing neurosurgery years ago, I told uh, one of the guys, uh, I was interviewing with one of the professors and I said, well, you know, he said, what are you? And I said, I'm, I'm very active. I'm a runner. And he goes, well, you won't run anymore. And so that attitude, well, you know, listen, buddy, I ran, (laughs) I ran, I did, you know, so that attitude is, he should have told me instead of saying, well, you won't run anymore. He should have said, you know what, just go for everything you can possibly do and be a neurosurgeon and be an artist and be this and be a mother and be this and be this. So, you know, that's the attitude that I want in my professors. And, mm-hmm. and people that follow me, mm-hmm. I want them to be inclusive of different perspectives and what anybody, you know, the, the more off the rails you are, the more you bring to the, the profession. Yeah. Uh, th- that thinking was never there. They used to mm-hmm. say, you've got to all be the same. You know, you've got to all yeah. look the same. Mm-hmm. You've got to be, you know, the same gender, the mm-hmm. same this, same mm-hmm. that. No. The more different you are, the higher the program is, the higher the whole message is. So anyway, that's just one of my things. And I think that comes from being biracial, is that, you know, you're looking Mm -hmm. at things, you kind of don't really fit in one way or the other. And you're kind of watching this, you're watching that, and you take the best. It reminds me of the talent that Obama had by being Mm -hmm. biracial. Mm -hmm. He had a similar perspective on things that I thought was very unique. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I super agree, Doug. I mean, I think we are also seeing a new generation of doctors, right? And also other healthcare workers where it's like, oh, well, you know, I'm a doctor, but I'm also a singer and also a dancer. I'm also a this and a that, right? Like, I feel like the pool yeah. of students and the residents are becoming more diversified, not just when it comes to race and ethnicity, but we're seeing, I think here in social media, especially on TikTok, right? We see so many talented people. And before yeah. you know it, yeah. they're actually a surgeon. They're actually this yeah. and that too. So I agree with that. And one of my mentors, who's also an attending physician, she was saying, how she's so excited for the next generation of physicians to come in where brings more to the table when it comes to experiences and hobbies and other activities and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, I think your generation, the generation that you uh, encompass, is going to really make some amazing changes. I do think that healthcare should be free. Mm. And I don't think anybody should have to go into debt to save their life or their, or to make their life better. And so I think that that is coming and COVID may have had a little bit to do with that. And so, yeah. So one of the things I think with COVID is that when the government wants to do something, they do it. (laughs) Free free tests, free vaccines, and so well organized. So I'm hopeful that by the time you reach my age, <laughs> things will have really changed so that, you know, most of my career was done in socioeconomically challenged areas. Mm-hmm. I worked a lot at Harlem Hospital. I've also worked in the South Bronx. Mm-hmm. And it's such an incredible experience to see what people in those communities have to go through to get good health care. Yeah. And I would not change that experience for any Ivy League or any highfalutin beautiful hospital. I would rather work in those type of environments because it made me a better person. And there's no way to teach that except to do it. Yeah, I mean, I also rotated at Harlem Hospital during my clinicals in nursing school and a lot of the city hospitals here in New York too, in Woodhall, in Bellevue. And I think it's in those populations and areas where you're right, Doc, you really see this fragility of the human condition where it's like, like this is healthcare, this is medicine, right? This, this is the crux of it all. And I super agree with that. And Aside from all that, I wanted to ask, like, why neurosurgery? What led you to this specialty as opposed to other things? Well, basically, 
athlete. You know, I was an athlete my whole life. Yeah. So I wanted to do something physical, right? That, that puts me in the surgical category. Yeah. <laughs> and brain, really, it's, it's just plain and simple. Because, you know, one of my goals before was to try to understand the human brain. And uh, at this point in my life, I realized that that was uh, pretty naive <laughs> and uh, I should have tried to understand outer space <laughs> because the brain is it's just like an unfolding box. You can never get to the end of it. Yeah. And we probably are at our infancy in terms of understanding um, mm-hmm. the depth of complexity of the human brain. But basically, I went in because I thought I just, I, I was going to go into OBGYN. And then when we did neuroanatomy, I just said, wait a minute. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> hold on. I told, I told myself, hold on. I, I think you want to study this organ. <laughs> but but, but yeah. really, I have, I have the best OBGYN mm. ever. So, yeah. you know, one of the things I wanted to tell you is when I first decided to branch off into art, mm-hmm. I was embarrassed to tell my colleagues mm. that I was going to art because, you know, I was uh, at the point it was mid-career. I was chief at a hospital, a tra- level one trauma hospital mm. for neurosurgery in the Bronx. And I didn't want to tell anybody because I thought they would judge me. Mm-hmm. But once they saw my art, they mm-hmm. actually embraced it. Right. So, so you, know, you think, you know, you're doing something a little bit outside the mainstream and it's odd and then i don't know for some reason sometimes people just instead of like saying you know what are you doing what are you wasting they they embrace it and yeah so i just yeah so just do whatever is in your heart and bring it to the field and don't worry about what they are are going to say because probably they'll celebrate you yeah and i love also how you said that i mean your colleagues when, once they saw your art it's like Yes, full support. I know you said that your artistic love, you know, came in the middle of your journey. But when you were a kid, did you ever already like Jolly? Did you realize? No, I did not. I didn't start uh, until about 15 years ago. As It was really, yeah. I was in my 40s when I really started. I was taking a few classes for so You know, you don't know why you do stuff. <laughs> But it comes from something deep inside, like there's a little kernel. And so I said, oh, let me sign up for this art class at the Y, right? And I missed half of them because of surgery or emergency. And I was like, you know, I was looking at my pieces and I was saying, you're terrible. It's so bad. And I said, if you really want to sing, you've got to go to formal school. And so at that point, you know, I made a decision. I said, you know, I think it's giving me something. I couldn't even verbalize what comfort or Mm -hmm. solace Mm -hmm. or refuge that art was giving me. But I realized that I had, after art school, that I had something to kind of expunge Mm -hmm. onto the the canvas. And then, you know, dealing with the canvas and the narrative, Mm -hmm. it made my neurosurgery career better. Yeah. It's like really, you know, when you, you think, Oh, you know, you're going out, you're going outside the lines, you know, you're doing Mm -hmm. one thing that Mm -hmm. nobody else is doing and it's kind of odd. No, no, actually it's, it's, it's yeah. something you need. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's surprising. It comes up. So if you, you know, like there's a lot of my colleagues, uh, a few of my colleagues who um, said, you know, when I retire, I'm going to go into art. And, you know, I kind of just said, oh, okay. But in reality, in reality, if it's burning inside of you, don't wait. Mm. Go and do it. Like, yeah. just somehow find a way mm-hmm. to do a little bit of it. Because, yeah. you know, when, like they say, oh, I'm going to do it when I retire. You know, when you retire, you're it's too <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, also, like, things come up. Like, who imagined this pandemic to come up, right? Like, yeah, yeah. things are so yeah. unexpected. You're right. Like, we, we should just really go for it. And you went for your MFA, right? And yeah. what led to that decision of, oh, actually, I'm going to do, like, formal studies as opposed to just, like, I'm just going to paint as a passion? Because I was terrible. <laughs> so this my, is my, my, I, was so emba- I was embarrassed when I was at the Y. I would like hide my canvas, <laughs> so no one would see. It was a, it was a disaster. So I realized it's like pre med. I needed the pre med classes to like you know how, how does color work here? How does value work? How does composition? And it was like almost a whole different language mm-hmm. compared to 
to neurosurgery and medicine. Mm -hmm. It took me basically three and a half years to get mm -hmm. through school and medicine, medicine was four years and it was expensive too. Mm -hmm. you know, becoming an artist. And I felt really like, you know, from the art side, you know, a lot of my colleagues who paint way better than I am, they're going to have a hard time finding jobs mm -hmm. in art itself. But it, it was funny because um, here's a, here's a little funny story. So I was in the operating room one day mm -hmm. um, back at my residency. I was chief resident and one of the mean professors stood at the door and yelled, you hold the cranial drill like a girl. And, uh, and I just, I was like, I was like thinking to myself, what am I crappy? <laughs> you know, what, you know, it, it, why, why, what's wrong with my hands? You know, why am I still, why? You know, in, in your mind, it was a mean move. It was a mean move. He meant it mean. And then I said, you know, what, what the hell, you know, what, what's going on? But I realized, well, how else am I supposed to hold a goddamn cranial drill? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a girl, you know, how am I supposed to hold it? Like, a, you know, and so, and so then I said to myself, I said, took me a few years to like get over that cut because he meant it mean, but if I had been a little bit more composed and not a resident and he hadn't been such a high guy, I would have said to him, huh, how do you expect me to hold it? I would have come back at him, but I, di I didn't. I just held it inside and it bothered me for many years. And then I went to art school. And then the, the art professor goes, ah, you paint like a girl. <laughs> but I had a big comeback then. That was many years ago. And I said, yeah, well, how else do you expect me to paint? <laughs> so the art professor got it, got, got yeah. it back. And the neurosurgeon did not. In this world of social media that places so much physical critique and pressure on maintaining a youthful appearance against all environmental odds, the skincare and beauty industries have succumbed to a myriad of anti-aging practices. However, the covert fact is that beauty is timeless and that aging is a privilege. Regents, an inclusive wellness brand, seeks to promote this ritual of well-aging, understanding that it is connectivity with the body and attentive care given to it as it changes including our skin. Founded by Filipino-American Giulio Rizio, Regents introduces the all-encompassing serum, created to target the concerns of maturing melanated skin by utilizing a blend of healing botanicals used by our ancestors and select clinically proven active ingredients. From the brightening Ayurvedic licorice root to the soothing Centella Asiatica and hydrating green algae, welcome to the journey of fueling skin health and enhancing not changing your natural shade. With the code FRANZ, that's F-R-A-N-Z, you can get 15% off your first order on regionswellness.com. Experience the power of mixing native wisdom with modern-day science. Do you have any guilty pleasures? I have one. Boba. Given that the average cafe-made milk tea has over 100 calories per serving, over 20 grams of high glycemic sugar, and is packed with artificial flavors, I am so glad that the guilty days are over with Twirl, the world's first canned plant-based milk tea. With only 45 to 50 calories per serving and containing 6 to 7 grams of low glycemic sweeteners, Twirl is made with pea milk, the most sustainable plant-based milk on the market, regenerating the soil where it comes from. Fair trade and organic are the names of the game as the teas are sourced from biodiverse family farms in China, Japan, and Taiwan that practice sustainable farming techniques. No artificial flavors are ever used. From four different flavors to ready-to-eat plant-based konjac and boba pearls, let's enjoy tasty, creamy, shelf-stable, and healthy milk tea together for 10% off using the code FRANZ10, that's F-R-A-N-Z-1-0, on twirlmilktea.com. Twirl around in its goodness. Growing up, I was ashamed of my Asian heritage. Classmates would comment about the lunch my grandma cooked, other kids would make fun of my eyes, and even some adults today would tell me to go back to where I came from. But where do I really belong? Who really am I? Am I not American enough? Highlighting the year of the first documented arrival of Asian Americans in North America, 1587 Sneakers seeks to shine the spotlight on Asian American stories and demonstrate to the world the extraordinary breadth of our passions and achievements. Made with full-grain natural Italian leather by Fowey Artisans, 100% biodegradable natural rubber outsole. 
calf leather interior lining for comfort and good smells, and waxed cotton laces for longer-lasting cleanliness. These premium sneakers combine the highest quality, an array of timeless designs, and the movement to be authentically who you are. With the code FRANZ15, that's lowercase f-r-a-n-z-1-5, you can get 15% off your first order on 1587sneakers.com. Step into embracing your identity without hiding. Express yourself unapologetically. I noticed that it's as if you don't put a demarcation line between the neurosurgeon Dr. Ko and then the painter Dr. Ko. It seems like it really bleeds into each other for you in your life. How does neurosurgery help your role and your work as a painter and vice versa, painter as a neurosurgeon? Well, they bleed into each other. Mm. They, they literally bleed into each other. And I'm always trying to, um, you know, some, some episode that I've had in the hospital that I want to investigate a little bit more, mm-hmm. I will take it to the canvas. I will kind of analyze it there, see what my feelings were, try to see what the patient had felt. Although none of them are really patients. They're sort of a conglomerate of, of different ideas and patients. They're not really portraits of people. Although some of them look like portraits, it's not nobody in particular. And I just try to see what was the tension, what was the feeling, what was the passion at that particular moment. And what I'm trying to do in my art is capture the passion of that Mm. particular moment that I felt and try to have the lay uh, people that are not in medicine when they look at the art to try to get something from it. And also to try to understand what medical professionals go through on a different level, you know, we can write about it and we can talk about it, but there's something about a visual image that will stop a person not in medicine cold mm-hmm. if it hits them. And so that's what I'm going after. I'm going after the fact that, you know, medicine is a whole different way of looking at life mm-hmm. and that, um, you know, we're dealing with such critical issues, you know, and also the people want them to relate their own experiences, some of the people that look at the art. And I think probably the artists that I went to school with were most interested in the medical art, most interested in it. They found it fascinating. And so I think it does resonate beyond the medical profession, some of my pieces. And that's what I'm going through. I also do cartooning too, Mm. because I think humor is a good way to elucidate a bad experience. Mm Instead of saying like, oh, you know, this person said such a mean thing to me and was so mean and this and that. I think if you can make it funny, it gets your idea across without kind of being negative. Yeah. So I use a lot of, a lot of my cartooning is very autobiographical Mm. and yeah. And there's a lot of different, (laughs) and I try to, anyway, it's more autobiographical than my actual fine painting. Mm. So the cartooning. The cartooning has a lot to do with what I've gone through, and mm. but presented in a way that's kind of funny. Yeah. Um, My next question was going to be, as a painter, if your life was a snapshot, what would your painting look like? Well, it would probably be a painting of the brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. think I would even have a face there. It'd probably be just mm-hmm. the brain because I think that, I don't know, for some reason I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> Which yeah, is, yeah, I can tell. This is a real good thing if you're a brain surgeon, yeah. right? <laughs> I would hope so. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it would have something to do with my profound esteem and just incredible whatever it is for the brain that being you know, being from Hawaii and just some of the things I've, I've I've gone through. I think that would be really autobiographical. Plus, you know, hoping that the women that follow me and have it easier. And that I'm grateful to the women that went before me, paving the way through that wilderness. Mm. And so, yeah, so that's kind of like what I am, you know, interested in is um, pushing, you know, females forward. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. very curious. You know, you, you said earlier that there's just no limit to how much we can understand the brain with how complex or maybe even over complex it is was there ever and this might be hard to answer because there might be many different points but was there ever a point whether either doing surgery or i don't know 
post-surgical care where you were just like baffled about an aspect of the human brain that you were so surprised by? Oh, every day. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I just, I don't, you know, here's the thing that, uh, you know, I was working at, as I said, level many level one trauma centers and the intensity of the injuries and the trauma that people have patients have undergone and the ability to recover from it um it is is fascinating to me even even with strokes yeah i i just think that you know the, the traumatic injuries that i've seen and the results and people fighting to come back mm. uh, you know makes me admire the brain even more and and realize is the power of the human brain. I don't really think we've tapped into the full power mm. or the full potential of what the human brain is capable of doing, particularly with creativity, mm. um, particularly with the idea of using creativity to solve problems mm. instead of resulting to aggression. And so I, I do think that um, having been an artist and a neurosurgeon, is that um, I am really confident when I have an issue in the operating room that creativity will solve it. Um, I am totally confident. If there's anything that I'm confident in besides, uh, you know, my neurosurgical skills, it's creativity. And I do think that I can solve a problem creatively in a kind and um, truthful way. I think creativity is really the key to moving on to the next level. How do you feel about that? Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm just in awe of everything that you have said. Yeah, I think creativity is like a boat in the middle of an ocean that you don't know the dimensions to, right? The fact that everyone is different from each other, like someone's creative response to a problem will be so different from a person next to me. Right. And I wonder what the results of the fusion of different creativities would be in a single room in a, in a very dire moment, which I guess you see in the OR, right? I mean, your brain is not the only brain that's working in the OR, right? There's, there's, I don't know, a persistence there or the scrub techs or the nurses. I mean, I can't imagine like in times of emergency, how much is like creativity is there to, oh, maybe this is what we can do. Right, doc? Yeah. Yeah, because things come up that you didn't learn in, in residency. Mm. And so you have to somehow, in a split second, mm -hmm. in neurosurgery, neurosurgery, cardiac surgery, airway, transplant surgeries, you know, things happen that you didn't train for and you didn't expect. And you have to figure out, you have to, first of all, calm down. I mean, you, yeah. once you, you, you just have to lower your everything, has to lower. And you have to like go into this thing where you don't hear anybody. You're just, yeah. you're just so focused like a laser on this situation. And you have very limited time to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And so those things take a few years to learn mm. and to gain confidence. But you do get it. You do get it. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a hard thing. You know, that's the kind of thing they don't really teach is, uh, you know, what to do in that type of situation, except that you hope that you have some experience or you've seen something or you come up with some idea that can solve the problem. It doesn't happen that often. Um, it yeah. tends to happen to me uh, in the middle of the night, two o'clock in the morning, mm -hmm. when you're at a hospital that you know may or may not have had experience with this type of mm -hmm. thing. But you know, luckily, luckily, I've been able to move through those type of things in a, in a successful way. Yeah, I can't let you go without asking you about being ambidextrous. <laughs> How helpful is that during either oh, okay. neurosurgery or painting? <laughs> So when you're listening to those lectures, if you do write notes, I say, are you right-handed? I'm right-handed. Switch to your left hand. <laughs> I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't stay awake in medical school. I just, I just couldn't stay awake. I couldn't stay awake. The lectures, <laughs> I moved too much. So I could, sitting in a chair was not good for me. Yeah. And so, you know, lectures. And so back then, we wrote. We wrote. Yeah. <laughs> So I just said, yeah, right. One day I just said, you know what, I'm going to try to, I switched hands in medical school and started. And so then I could stay up because I was like, I'm oh, concentrating so hard trying to write with the left hand. 
And then after a period of time, I um, became ambidextrous. And I'll tell you something, boy, I'm boy, uh, surgical speed to be able to use the tools, you know, both hands really quickly, very dexterous. And in art, um, I switch off between, I do a lot of abstract mm -hmm. painting with my left hand and regular painting with the right. It, it, if I did anything in life, it has become ambidextrous. That, <laughs> to me, that was the best tool and the hardest, by the way. It was harder to become ambidextrous than it was to become a brain surgeon. Can you believe that? It should be its own specialty. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when you graduate, you could have like an ambidextrous fellowship. Yeah. <laughs> it should be like a new specialty, right? Or a new fellowship in surgeries, ambidextrous. Right, right. You know, unfortunately, the tools are made for right-handed, the, mm. the needle holder. Mm. And so you have to ask the scrub tech load for the left hand. Mm. And so a little bit, you know, it's, it's a little bit the scissors, right? Yeah. The scissors are right-handed. Mm -hmm. right? so, a little, little bit different, but um, yeah, it's the best thing I did. I think that helped my creativity a lot. I think yeah. that solved my creativity, yeah. For yeah. sure. Yeah. And you know, we always say that time is brain, and it's like, in hindsight, you are an extender of people's time, so the work you do as a neurosurgeon, I mean, I could never imagine how stressful it could be. I mean, people's like lives and the extension, potential extension of this literally in your hands, and a very small fraction of measurements, right? How do you decompress out of work after a long day or just a stressful entire day other than the painting that I know that you do for passion? Well, when you're in surgery, every move you make and every breath that you take in the OR, you're thinking about that patient. Mm. It's just, you just are. And mm. you are... You are so focused and hoping that your best that day is enough. Mm -hmm. You're hoping. But coming out of the OR, when you realize that the surgery went well and you're closing, when I say closing, you're stitching the wound closed, you're putting the dressing on. I just, what I, what I, I had several bad habits, which were going to the vending machines. <laughs> I mean, you can't. <laughs> That's terrible. You deserve <laughs> it. <laughs> that was a really bad habit. That was terrible. And I wrote about that too because I, I had, I, everybody knew about it in the hospital. So, but um, I kind of grew out of that. And yeah. I, uh, I, think, I think art, I think just thinking about what I've gone, what I've gone through and how I can um, conceptualize that two-dimensional surface helped me more than anything else. Mm -hmm. It kind of allowed me to figure out a way through that stress. And I think that's important for everybody. Going into a field of medicine, like medicine or any high-stress field is figuring out a way that you can take your career with you mm -hmm. and kind of figure out how you can live with it mm -hmm. in, in a meaningful and smooth way. Because if you don't, and you sort of just leave it there, you, I don't know, the thoughts just, it just adds up. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, stress, stressful situations are, neurosurgery is extremely stressful. Extremely, there's no, there's no getting around that. Yeah. There's no, no getting around that. Yeah. I can't imagine. Uh, Dr. Yeah. Ho, it is such a privilege and an honor to have talk to you tonight and heard your journey and all of your funny stories again <laughs> thank you so much for spending today to speak to me today i just had this like revitalized passion in me to give my best and my all for patients and my future patients so thank you thank you so so much well, thank you so much chris for having me it's just been it's been so much fun and you only get funny stories when you get to be as old as I am. <laughs> <laughs> I am ready. <laughs> Please keep in touch. And I want to know what happens to you, okay? Yes, Doc. Thank you so much. Yeah. Have a good day there. Yeah. Okay, bye-bye.